Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to have Chris Orlob on the podcast. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk. I obviously look forward to all all the guests, but Chris uh, has a special place in my heart because we both geek out on sales data. So Chris is the Senior Director of Product Marketing over at Gong.io, and they are one of the leading conversational intelligence platforms and one I've used extensively in the past and have really gotten great value out of. Today, our main topic is going to be talking about a post that Chris put out about sales being a chain link system. So we're going to talk about that, but it will really be a branching point into talking about tons of different sales stats. As folks know, I love to get to know the guests by asking them two quick questions. So Chris, I will ask you the first one, which is what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? That's a tough question for me to answer because I read a lot of books and I feel like my answer changes probably on a week over week basis. But the first one that comes to mind right now is probably the challenger customer. So that's like the sequel to the challenger sale. And I really like the challenger sale as well. Don't get me wrong. You kind of have to read that book for the challenger customer to make sense. But the challenger customer, the reason I like it is they go into deep detail about effective sales messaging. And I think that's an area of sales that's really underserved in kind of the plethora of sales books. And they talk a lot about why your sales messaging should be more focused on tearing apart the status quo and building pain rather than selling benefits and that kind of stuff. So anybody who's in a sales capacity or even a marketing or product marketing capacity could benefit greatly from reading that one. Like you, I'm actually a bigger fan of the challenger customer versus the challenger sale, precisely for the same reason that yep. I found the challenger customer, yes, the teach, tailor, take control thing is quite useful and, and is succinct, but the challenger customer has way more immediately actionable tips and tricks, which I loved. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's why I like it as well. Second question to get to know you, and you can wind the clock back maybe to your youth, is what was the first thing you ever remember selling in your life? So it was golf balls. So. I grew up in a little town in a house with a decent sized backyard that was at the tail end of a fairway on a golf course. And so because of where our house was located, uh, we would get a lot of slices hit into our backyard and we had like a fenced backyard. So we would accumulate tons of golf balls. Like I've never had to buy a golf ball in my entire life. It was like hundreds per summer. We would build up this base of golf balls. And I think when I was like five or six years old, I put up a sign on our fence. I opened the door and I started yelling golf balls for sale at the golfers, like literally mid swing. And I'm sure a lot of them didn't appreciate that. But golf balls were the first thing I ever sold. And then I did a bunch of like weird, odd sales jobs through high school and college, like selling coupon books door to door. And I really did start in the trenches, so to speak. Let's get into the the heart and soul of what we're going to chat about today, which again, you know, you put out this really amazing post about sales being a chain link system. So what do you mean by that? So a chain link system or a system that has chain link logic behind it, that is where it has a bunch of different components and the performance of the system in a chain link system is limited by the weakest link. So a military convoy is a great example of a system with chain link logic. You've got six or seven vehicles all moving together in the convoy. And the speed of the convoy is not the fastest vehicle. It's limited by the slowest vehicle because they've all got to travel in a pack. So 
selling skills, depending on how narrowly or broadly you zoom in to define selling skills, they are a chain link system. So if you think about the core pillars of what makes a great set of sales skills, you've got things like discovery, you've got things like prospecting and objection handling and presenting and negotiation. And what ends up happening is if you're particularly weak in one of those areas of selling, then it really doesn't matter much. I wouldn't say it doesn't matter at all, but it doesn't matter as much if you improve the other elements of your skill set because your success is then going to be limited by your weakest link. So let's say you're great at discovery calls, you're great at presenting, you're great at most of those sales skills, but you're weak at objection handling, you're painfully weak at it. Well, you're going to lose deals a lot more often than you should because objections come up in even the best sales cycles. And if you can't address those, then the deal's going to go south. And you could swap in any of those sales skills you know, with objection handling. If you're weak at discovery, then you're not going to be able to tailor your value prop to the customer's need. If you're weak at sales presentations, but strong in every other area, then you're not going to be able to communicate how your product or solution is going to be able to fulfill the customer's need effectively. So that's what I mean by chain link system. Got it. Yeah. You know, when I first read it, my early objection was, but sales is not linear, right? But it's, it, it doesn't need to be linear, right? Is that you can go back and forth between different elements. And still, if you're weak, for example, at objection handling, that is your weakest link. Yeah. It's, it's a very dynamic skill set because you're going to be having to bounce around different flavors of conversation, you know, pitching, asking questions, working through objections and, you know, kind of tough negotiating circumstances. If you're not able to fluidly address each of those scenarios throughout a sales process, then you'll lose more deals than you should. One of the things in your article was basically, you don't have to be dramatically great in any one of those areas. Yep. Let's talk to that a second is like the difference in performance between the top salespeople and, you know, your average or bottom salespeople. Well, I think there's a compounding nature to building your skill set in sales. The article probably spelled it out to be a little bit more binary than I should have, where it said, you know, star salespeople do not have superpowers. They don't have like a single sales skill that they're like absolutely excellent at. Sometimes they do. But the real power in sales comes from when you're just a little bit better at every area of selling. You're 10% better at objection handling. You're 10% better than your peers at discovery. 10% better than presenting. 10% better across six or seven different areas. And what most people don't realize, because your brain is not wired to understand compounding effects, is that if you're 10% better across six areas, that doesn't make you 10% better than your peers. It doesn't even make you 60% better than your peers, you know, 10% across six. It makes you 77% better than your peers. So these little differences spread through leverage points. They seem almost imperceptible, but they lead to dramatically different results. I was listening to or reading some other content recently having nothing to do with sales, but it was somebody was talking about coders. And they said, unlike other areas where the difference in performance is not all that big, like, you know, the best runner and the second best runner, or even the best runner and the average runner, you know, you're talking about sometimes fractions of a seconds of difference. Yep. Whereas the best coders can be, I don't know, 10x or 100x more productive. If you compare that to the sales world, 
a sales executive who probably goes on a performance plan and possibly gets exited from the business would be someone who maybe hit 50% of quota. Mm-hmm. And your superstars are usually, say, 200% of quota. Part of the thinking that needs to go behind that is those are the end results rather than the things that are driving those results. So that top seller who's doing 200% of quota is probably not four or five times better at selling than the person who's only doing 50% better. It's very similar to golf. The person who takes first prize in the PGA is only like 1.9 strokes better than the person who takes fifth or 10th place. But they get, I think it was like seven times the prize money. So it's like this small difference. It's kind of like a horse race too. That's another example. The first place horse in a horse race wins by a nose. But the rewards are totally outsized in terms of prize money goes. I do think that's so relevant in sales because if you think about it, a very little bit better as a salesperson can actually make you, to your point, a much dramatically more successful performer relative to your competitor. On the discovery side, what can get you that 10% better? Well, the, the first stat that comes to mind is the talk to listen ratio, which I think a lot of people will be familiar with by now because we talk about it so much, where it's top producing salespeople talk for 43% of a discovery call on average compared to average and low performing salespeople. They're in like the upper 60s and in some case 70s. Now, that's not all that actionable though. So the real question is how do you achieve that? 46% talk to listen ratio and what are you actually saying and how are you directing the conversation once you do achieve that and i think there's a big insight that especially people who have less than 5 years of sales experience tend to not understand and it's that your approach to discovery is going to change based on where the buyer lives within their buyer's journey so if we wanted to generalize discovery strategy so to speak you've got two different scenarios you've got outbound discovery which is you know you're having an intro meeting with somebody who has latent pain it's not active pain they're not looking for anything they probably don't even know who you are or they're maybe just vaguely aware of who you are and then you've got inbound discovery strategy which is somebody came to you they scheduled like a discovery call or you know product demo or something like that and achieving the right talk to listen ratio approaching those calls in the same way would get you kicked in the teeth you've got to totally change up your discovery strategy in each one of those scenarios to get to that quote unquote golden talk to listen ratio so an example is if you think about the buyer's journey and somebody comes inbound to you They're actively looking for a solution. They're possibly evaluating your competitors. They have a buying vision and they've already defined and crystallized what their pain points are. So if you start that discovery meeting with help me understand your greatest challenges, if they're a polite person, they may answer your question. But if you continue that line of questioning, you're going to continually irritate them because you're talking about challenges that's at the top of the buyer's journey they're past that. A better way to approach that, and this is not new, this is like solution selling 101, is to ask them a question that aligns and respects where they are in the buyer's journey. So again, if they've come inbound, they've already crystallized their problem, they're looking at solutions and they have a buying vision, now you can ask a question that takes advantage of that momentum. And it might be, help me understand what you're trying to achieve by implementing X solution. Now you're talking about what they want to talk about. 
you know, as you talk about that statistic, top salespeople talk about 43% of the time, the average or underperforming rep will tend to talk much more about 70% of the time. You and I know post a lot of these sorts of statistics, and one of the objections that we get is, well, that's correlation, not causation. And maybe the ones that appear to be top reps is simply that the prospect was more engaged to begin with and therefore talking more, whereas in the other cases, the prospect was less forthcoming. It was more outbound. How do you respond to that objection? That objection would be more valid if we were looking at outcomes of a deal. But in that analysis, we're not looking at outcomes of a deal. We're looking at top performers versus average performers and low performers. And each one of those groups gets, at least in theory, an equal amount of inbound deals, an equal amount of outbound deals. We're looking at the person and analyzing them rather than just the outcome of a single deal that closed or was lost, where correlation and causation is a much bigger question mark. So I think the consistency of that happening with a group of people starts to stamp out that objection a little bit. The second thing is, I think correlation, the word correlation today, gets an unnecessarily bad reputation. Like People automatically assume correlation is bad because they're comparing it to the holy grail of causation. But most things in life are correlation, and correlations shouldn't be ignored. There's a strong correlation between smoking 15 cigarettes a day and getting lung cancer. Does that mean we should ignore that correlation because the causation still has at least some question marks? Of course not. They direct our thinking. We should come to our own conclusions. We should analyze why these correlations exist. But simply putting a stamp of disapproval on the word correlation simply because it could not get to the elusive causation, which is really rare anyway, I think is a massive mistake. Since I've been lobbing objections at you, maybe the place to go next is stats that you found on how great salespeople, those you know, 10% or better salespeople, actually handle objections. Yeah. So I'll start with the average or lower performing salespeople. So they have a habit, according to our data, of steamrolling objections. Okay, so when they receive an objection from a buyer or a customer, the most common response is they tend to go on a 30-second plus monologue. In some cases, that comes across as interruptive. In almost all cases, it comes across as just too eager. And it also puts you in a dangerous situation where you're addressing the wrong issue. Because objection handling scenarios are often just rife with potential misunderstanding. The customer says one thing, they utter no more than a sentence, and you cling to whatever your interpretation of that sentence was and then give your answer. By contrast, top-performing salespeople, again, according to our data, respond to objections with questions of their own far more often. I think the numbers were like 54% versus 31%. So it's like top-performing salespeople respond to objections with questions 54% of the time, whereas average-performing salespeople respond to objections with questions only 31% of the time. And this part is more anecdotal. And like I said, the anecdotal combined with statistics and data helps you complete a fuller picture of what's going on. But what I've heard from earshot, top performing salespeople asking when they get objections is a question that sounds something like, can you help me understand that concern a little bit further? Okay, so they don't ask why, 
they don't get an objection and just ask why, which comes across as trite and even a little bit threatening. They ask why without uttering the word why to get the buyer to further clarify the objection before they give a strong answer. Anecdotally uh, as well, I, I also noticed that some of the top sales leaders in the world, like the you know chief revenue officers who are just absolutely killing it, they approach their customer conversations with an air of almost status and lack of neediness. So you won't see those people like leaning forward, eager, their body language almost exudes like, yes, I'm here to help you, but I don't need this deal to close. I love that as well. We had a rep who closed a monster deal, basically made his quarter at the first month. And he then went on to have an epic quarter. And I asked him what's going on. And he said, I'm, I'm not afraid. Like, I don't need the deal and I'm confident. So why not? Whether you've already crushed your quota or not, why not just have that tone of confidence? Part of the principle here is that neediness is just, it's bad for any type of human relationship. And that, that includes potential customers, that includes work with real customers, and it even includes interactions with people in your personal life. I think coming across as desperate or needy, I can't imagine a scenario where that would serve you well. I have a theory, and I don't know if you've been able to test this or not, that the most successful salespeople speak not only softer, but especially slower. Have you looked at the rate of speech of the top reps versus an average or bottom performing rep? I actually tend to agree with you, but unfortunately, I haven't seen any data that totally confirms or denies that hypothesis. So we ran that data and it was just kind of all over the place. It was like some top performing salespeople talk slower, some talk faster, some talk, you know, an average pace. There was really no rhyme or reason. One thing we did see though, which is true to the, you know, subtopic we've been discussing at hand is rate of speech in objection handling scenarios. And what we found is that top salespeople don't necessarily change their rate of speech during an objection. And that's where the power is because low performing salespeople actually speed up their rate of speech when they receive an objection. And again, that goes back to what we were just talking about. It comes across as nervous and insecure and probably at a subconscious level. I'm not a brain scientist, but I would imagine what could be happening is it triggers some red flags in the customer's brain. Like, why is this person acting this way when I had a simple question? So top performing salespeople, again, according to the data, it looks like they're keeping their cool. The other thing related to speech patterns that I know your platform does a great job looking at is counting ums and ahs. Yeah. We all assume ums and ahs project lower confidence, I suppose, or lower authority. But have you seen differences in the rate of filler words between top performers and average and bottom performers? So when we looked at filler words, we couldn't find any correlation between using filler words and either failure or success or any other type of outcome. And I think the takeaway there is not necessarily that filler words don't matter. You should strive to eliminate those from your habit repertoire. The point though is in sales, deals are won and lost, especially in B2B on things that are much larger than filler words. If a customer has an urgent problem 
they're probably not really going to care if the salesperson says um or ah or like every now and then. Now, that's not to say that those bad habits aren't reflecting poorly on the salesperson, at least to some minor extent. But at some level, the customer is overlooking that because they're bigger fish to fry. We've talked a lot about bits and pieces of the conversation that salespeople have with prospects. I know one of my pet peeves is if I'm listening to a call recording, I'm hoping and praying that the salesperson will talk about next steps actually in two places. One is uh, since I'm a big fan of upfront contracts, I want people to state the time, their agenda, check on the prospect's agenda, and then preview next steps. But then most importantly, let's say you're in a you know, 40 minute to an hour long call that I, I would expect in the last 10 minutes, you start to wrap into next steps. The ones that kill me is when the prospect has says, oh, okay, I got to run to my next meeting. And basically there's no next meeting on the calendar, which means the probability your deal is going to move forward is dramatically lower. So what have you guys found with respect to next steps? I'm glad you brought up upfront contracts because I actually think that's one of the keys to making good on the data that I'm about to talk about. So we found that at the end of intro sales meetings, like your first discovery slash demo call, top salespeople discuss next steps for about 53% more time than average and low performing salespeople do. And that's another one of those stats where it's like, okay, great. What's my actionable takeaway? How do I actually achieve a longer duration of talking next steps? The answer to that question, or at least one of the answers to that question, is starting the call right with an upfront contract. So instead of just whizzing through the call and expecting to spend a good 7 to 10 minutes thoroughly mapping out what a concrete next step could be, you get that agreement upfront. You say, hey, here's what I had in mind for this call. Here's the purpose. Here's the agenda. And if this makes sense to you, and you can judge it for yourself, what I'd love to do is spend the last 5 to 10 minutes of this call sizing up your comfort level about what next steps are and then planning out those next steps. And then you go through the call and assuming everything goes well, talking about next steps, quote unquote, 53% longer is kind of a foregone conclusion. And are there ways to talk about next steps? Is there a transition language that you found effective? It's more so what not to do. And this is getting outside of the realm of our data and more into personal observation anecdotes. But don't use weak language. Don't say, can I pencil you in for next week? I think the most powerful salespeople use language that is just that powerful. So they'll make suggestions. They'll give an element of control to the customer while also maintaining a leadership position themselves. So an example of that is they'll say, look, I've got a few potential next steps in mind in case you don't have any ideas. But if you do have ideas, I'd love to hear what those are. Now you've put yourself in a win-win situation because if the customer has gone through a buyer's journey or a buying process similar to this one before, you're giving them the opportunity to guide the buying process in the right way. But if they have no idea what that next step looks like, then you come prepared, you take a leadership position, and you make a recommendation of what that next step could or should be. Since we're talking about disco and demo, you had some data once, and I, I don't think I completely understand it. And my question comes down to this, which is, you know, you see some organizations where they separate the calls and discovery in one call and demo in another call. And then you see other organizations where they combine disco and demo. And where they combine disco and demo, more often than not, the calls I hear, there's like this block of discovery, and then there's this block of demo. And hopefully both conversational, but not always. 
what have you seen works amongst all those different combinations? It goes back again to the buyer's journey and the expectations they have and what they're hoping to talk about at that intro call. I see fewer and fewer dedicated discovery calls working. Buyers just seem to kind of grow irritated with that approach, at least in the market that we sell into and with the customers that we work with. And that's coming from a guy who used to really advocate that approach. So it almost pains me to say that. I think one of the keys here is using what a guy named Peter Cohan terms vision generation demos. And what he recommends, which I've seen work tremendously well, is you combine your disco and demo call together, but you're only showing enough product to whet your buyer's appetite so that they know what sort of problem this could solve for them or what sort of opportunity this could help them exploit. But you're just using that as essentially a backdrop for a discovery conversation. I've found it increasingly difficult to have a blank discovery call without some sort of backdrop for a conversation these days. Now, one other approach I will say that works if you're really adamant about avoiding showing product on the first call, and this is particularly relevant for outbound deals where active pain might not be existent, is using what I call a discovery prompter and structuring your initial sales meeting in that way. You start off with the meet and greet, you set the upfront contract, and then your next three to five minutes is walking through a very short slide deck that's not about your product. It's about the narrative of the problem or opportunity you help solve for. And assuming you've crafted that message well, then you end that and simply pass the torch over to your buyer and say enough about us and what Gong does. Help me understand you and the challenges you're facing. And if your three to five minute discovery prompter resonated, and then you ask that question, it tends to unload the floodgates. They tend to talk a lot about problems that they see you being able to fix. It triggers a really rich discovery conversation after that. Unfortunately, I don't think data can fully answer all of these questions because the selling motions are so specific to the organization and not even the organization, but the selling scenarios that you find within each organization. Yeah, I mean, you just made me remember my favorite discovery meeting of all time where I was on the receiving end. And the slide deck that was put in front of me was literally two slides. The first slide framed the sort of what, why, and how of what the product did and who it served and what the ultimate business benefit was. But the killer slide was slide number two, and that was really the last one in the deck. It was just a grid of six use cases, ideas of how you could use that product to deliver business value. We spent the better part of an hour going through those and my responding to whether whatever, you know, I'll have a number two and a number four, please. The other ones I said, nope, not relevant to me, but let's talk about how you guys can actually provide business value on those things. And as I've moved to subsequent places after I got that particular disco, I've tried to incorporate that into the way that our sellers sell. We do the exact same thing at Gong. So we tell a quick narrative about how getting visibility into customer conversations helps you make good on the three pillars of revenue success, which we term people success, deal success, and strategy success. And we unpack that a little bit. And then the final slide in that narrative is exactly what you just said. So we've got three columns on the top, 
people success, deal success, and strategy success. And then the rows are kind of like sub problems that are often found within those three pillars. And I think we have like between seven or eight like sub issues that are on that grid. And we just then pass the torch over to the customer and we say, which of these resonates with you? I keep like the wisdom of Chris Orlob. I have a Google sheet that I keep all your stuff. And it's things like you're 41% more likely to succeed if you use your webcam throughout the sales cycle. Or having multiple participants from the buyer's organization correlates with a 32% increase in close rates. It just goes on and on. So uh, we won't be able to get to all that, which just means people are going to have to check you out on social media. So how can people find your great stuff? The best place is LinkedIn. If you connect with me and just write a simple note that you found me on this podcast, I would be happy to accept. And you can find me. It's My name is Chris Orlob. So last name is spelled O-R-L-O-B as in boy. And I would be happy to have a conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.